So yesterday when we gathered here for Tasha, we took up the lustrous question of true God. What is true God? How do we discover it? Where do we discover it? What is it? Does it have our name on it? And it's interesting that you know, when we open up Teisho in this context, we say that the Teisho or the Dharma is rarely encountered. You know, I in hundreds of thousands of millions of kalpas. And yet, of course, we're encountering it with every single step we take. Never astray. Every single moment is our eureka moment. It is the gold of our life shining forth. And it has never been missing. In fact, this is the moment you have been waiting for. Right now, here it is. But today I actually want to turn in the direction of this upside-down country, which we've been travelling through this session, these great undulations of country and I want to look at it and extend it into the sense that we can all have of living in an upside down world right now. There is so much change, so much tumult, politically, socially, culturally, certainly environmentally. Anybody who's had their eyes open over the last couple of months will have just seen what's happening up north in the globe and how extreme that is. But we've already touched that here. We've already been touched by that here. It's now just evident, if it wasn't already clear before, that the world is on fire. The world is on fire. It has been turned upside down. How are we going to practice in such a world? How do we live in such a difficult, strange, challenging environment? And I think of the gold here and the way this sort of mad hunt for gold. They used to say that the gold miners' eyes would turn black when they saw gold. They really almost get deranged and become sort of fixated on this extractive mindset. But that's extended throughout the world. Think of just the coal or the gas or the lumber that we chop down. All the different things that we go pilfering from the earth as if it's just ours for the taking. As if there's no mind to the subterranean context of this earth. The one earth that there is in the entire universe. There is no other place like this. What a miracle to find ourselves here. And yet look at what we're doing. Look at how reckless we are being with our home. And then I think even more recently about how this extractive, almost sort of mining mindset infiltrates just our day-to-day -day lives. Again, if your eyes have been opened, you would have been watching the scandal of the robo-debt. Is it a surprise that the most vulnerable people are being mined in our world? Perhaps not. Does it hurt? It certainly does. Is it a kind of stealing from each other. Yes, it is. And then, of course, I can't help thinking of all this talk that's been going on around things like 
ChatGPT. You know, this apparent marvel in our world that is nevertheless behind the scenes mining every single person's work. You know, creative, music, literature, you name it. The entire digital world has been raked for this information, apparently to make our lives easier. But at what cost? At what cost this great theft from ourselves? It's almost like we're hell-bent on stealing our own humanity from ourselves. Why on earth would we be doing this? Well, I want to enter you know, these questions of living in an upside-down world, picking up actually on one of the cases I introduced yesterday. I mentioned actually just the beginning of the case. It's the one where Jojo says, I can make a one blade of grass become a 16-foot gold Buddha. And I can make a 16-foot gold Buddha be one blade of grass. Now we took this up in the light of form becomes emptiness. Emptiness becomes form. Our relationship to this world is so dependent on how open we are to it. Can we see that every single thing here is passing through, passing through? A single blade of grass, if we allow it to be itself, becomes a golden Buddha. And when we get to know golden Buddha through and through and through, we can just say, ah, blade of grass, blade of grass, just as it is, nothing extra, nothing added. But this case actually goes on. In fact, the full case is this. Jiao Zhou says, I can make one blade of grass be a 16-foot gold Buddha. And I can make a 16-foot gold Buddha be one blade of grass. Buddha is compulsive passions. Compulsive passions are Buddha. And a monk perhaps a little scandalised by these words, came up to Jiao and said, for the sake of whom does Buddha become compulsive passions? The Master said, for the sake of all people, Buddha becomes compulsive passions. The monk is still troubled and says, how can they be escaped? And Jiao said, what's the use in escaping? What's the use in escaping? So Buddha is compulsive passions. Compulsive passions are Buddha. Does this not scandalise some of the classical, you know, traditional presentations of Buddha, which is all about relinquishing all of these difficult emotions, all of these difficult states, perhaps even difficult itself? Isn't that what practice is all about? Well, Jiao Zhou is stepping through this in a very pointed way. It's interesting that in ancient Greek, passions were sometimes translated as troubles. Troubles. So all those troubles that we have, all those mixed emotions that we have, can we experience them as Buddha? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. Each and every one of them. After all, we're not here to escape Buddha. We're not here to escape our true nature. We're here to embody 
our true nature. To actually embody the entire world, to find that there is no distinction between this very body, the Buddha, and this very place, the Lotus Land. As we recite in Hakuen Senji's Song of Zazen, every day of session. So how might we start to feel our way into accepting the difficulty, accepting the trouble, accepting the intelligence of the passions of this life? Well, one of the ways is actually to spend a little bit more time with our great friend Avalokiteshvara, the great Kuan Yin, who mercifully of course, this is the Bodhisattva of mercy and compassion, turns up each time in our Heart Sutra. Remember, the Heart Sutra opens with Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, practicing deep Pranayaparamita. This is Kuan Yin. This is Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. How sweet it is that it's Kuan Yin who actually delivers the Heart Sutra from the heart might say. Because Kuan Yin is the one who cannot but hear the cries of the world. Who wouldn't dream of trying to shut out the cries of the world. Avalokiteshvara, as some of you may know, in most iconography is either standing or seated. Sometimes with an arm raised or a hand raised like this in gentle reassurance. Reassurance. It's okay. It's all okay. And in the other hand is a vase, the flower usually coming out of it. But that vase is said to hold the tears of all the cries of the world. She holds them in her left hand, gently, firmly, without resistance. And there's something beautiful about the way that this liquid of life, the liquid of tears, you know, the liquid of this salty world. We live in a salty world, a world rich with sweat and blood and tears and the whole shamozzle. It's all here, this salty liquid world. We're surrounded by that salty liquid world, of course. It sustains all life. Apparently all life came out of it. And this flower too comes out of this vase. And this is a flowering, if you like, of beauty, fragility, beauty, of response, of fragrance, of brightening the world. How interesting that these two are found one in the other and in this character of Kuan Yin. And the thing I want to actually focus in on today with Kuan Yin is that she is the one who hears. She is the one who listens. And this is the practice of the Bodhisattva, the one who no longer shuts out the world but lets it in, to be truly informed by that world. And I love that this Heart Sutra has within it this word here. And even within the word here, we have the word ear. It's like the whole thing just sort of boils down to this point of 
opening ourselves up to listen deeply. So listening deeply, of course this is what we do in our zazen. We become that great ear. Each one of us curled up as a kind of soft globe, ready for the world, listening for the world. <coughs> and of course all of the sounds and the movements and the feelings come in. And who's not loved the little ticking of the fire, or the calls of the birds outside, or the sound of chopping in the kitchen, or of an incredible tap in the women's toilet over there. <laughs> it seems to sing its own wild tune. Yeah. But all of this is received in Zazen clean. It's received clean. And so in some ways, in Zazen, we are learning how to listen. We are learning how to hear. And I was very moved recently to read a book by a local author, actually, Andrew Skioch. I don't know if anybody even knows him. He's in Newstead. He's written a, a book called Deep Listening to Nature. And he happens to be, who knew, one of the country's greatest field recorders, you know, recording people. He travels all around the country and does these exquisite recordings of all sorts of things. Some that leap to mind are the song of the butcher bird in Ormiston Gorge in Central Australia. He just has a 25-minute recording of it just releasing itself, you know, into that gorge. Astonishing, astonishingly beautiful. He also lowers microphones down into places like Port Phillip Bay and you can hear the clicking and singing of shrimp in the water. Incredible. And one time he just left a microphone in the loose leaf litter around here in Castlemaine and this crow decided that that was a stranger <laughs> and had to be met and so it actually came up to him had this entire conversation with the microphone before signalling to its friends up in the tree it's all cool <laughs> but Andrew talks in his book about learning to listen and one of the encounters that he says was pivotal to him was actually meeting this Aboriginal ranger this is somewhere up in northern New South Wales I think from memory this fellow called Harold and he said Harold was a very quiet sort of reserved man but he was given the job of driving Andrew out into this particular country where Andrew hoped to actually collect some very interesting sound recordings and Harold did put them all into the troopie and take them all out <coughs> into the bush and then at one point he just turned off the road and turned to Andrew and said we're going to find a place, this is what Andrew records we're going to find a place to sit quiet you go maybe on those rocks over there he says indicating with a gesture with his hand we'll just sit a while and listen Andrew says after the drive I'm glad of the opportunity to settle get the sounds of the vehicle out of my head and let my ears adjust. I nod. Good. It'll give us some time to tune into the bush. Harold focuses on me for a long moment as though wondering how or even whether to respond. 
And then he says softly, no, that's not why we do this. Andrew says, now I am puzzled. And I turn to Harold and say, I don't understand. And Harold says, this is not for you to tune into the bush. It's for the bush to tune into you. Find out what kind of fella you are. Whether you're a good character. Whether you can be trusted. If you are, the bush will start revealing itself. It'll start talking to you. It'll tell you things. And Andrew says that for him, this was a great reversal of what initially was a project. A project almost to listen at things. But from then on, he discovered that we're being listened to. We're being listened to. And this is the quality of Kuan Yin. This is the quality of Avalokiteshvara. She's not shutting out the world's cries because they're her cries. She is being heard. We are being heard. Our own cries are being heard. Again, there is no separation here. And it's when we can open ourselves up in this way that the bush can start telling us things. We all know this from any kind of extended retreat. The bush comes closer. The animals come closer. The sky comes closer. The earth comes closer. Everything comes closer. As if to ask us, who is hearing that sound? Who is hearing? <coughs> Somebody who did know how to listen to this country around here was Doug Ruff. And I know that Many people here will either have known Doug Ralph, or perhaps even in the early days of Castle Maine were part of the walks we had with Doug Ralph. Doug was this wonderful man who was so generous with his time, I think because he just wanted people to join him in the bush. He actually looked like he'd stepped directly out of the 19th century, you know, big gold miner's beard, you know, funny old shirts and things, and his little dog Rocky that would follow him no matter where he went beautiful man and a unique kind of man too because he was not somebody who had an agenda he was you know a great fighter for green causes you know because he loved the bush but he loved the indigenous story and understanding of the bush as he grew even more through his life to understand it and he loved the heritage of the gold mining history and everything that happened here. He used to claim that he came from gold mining stock. And he loved the bush here, just as it was, without tampering. And he used to tell me often, because I went on many, many walks around this country with Doug, we'd often find ourselves in the most unlikely places. Oh, Doug, you're here. And he'd say, come for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we would just sit and listen to the bush. And he told me once about a time where he was just sitting and listening, just being in the bush. And he said, I was there, Ken, and I was just listening, and I just thought, on the one hand, how quiet this is, but also how raucous this is, you know, with all of those incredible sounds that sort of 
know, it's impossible to describe, isn't it? You know, the way that these sounds just tinkle, you know, and squawk and squeak and turn and hiss and move. And he said, I was just appreciating that when suddenly the bush did turn astonishingly silent, as if the volume had just been suddenly turned off. And then I heard a... of this powerful owl that had just arrived and every single creature in the entire vicinity knew shut up (laughs) (laughs) we could be in big trouble (laughs) but he says it was like quietness becoming even more quiet and then there's a different kind of hum it's almost like the hum of the earth yeah, is is possible to hear even in their quiet, just with that powerful howl, erasing any destruction at all. And he also used to talk about things like the way the bush is just so interconnected. He was listening not just with his ears to the bush, but he used to marvel at the way that you know we live in a place that is made up mostly of coppiced growth. So many of the trees that were here were cut down at the stump level. And you'll notice as you walk around that most of the trees, you know, branch out, multiform, you know, from this chopped stump. And they grow up thinner than perhaps the original trees would have been. And he spoke of how rangers here decided that this was almost unhealthy for the bush, unhealthy for these trees because they were growing in these thin, wispy kinds of ways and they never got to you know, mature properly. So the rangers in their wisdom decided that they have to poison a few of these trees to make way for growth so that the trees could become bigger. Doug said, no, 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 don't poison the trees. Please don't poison the trees. But they said, no, 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 we must do this or otherwise it's unhealthy for the bush. So they poisoned a tree here and they poisoned a tree here and they poisoned a tree here and then they left hoping that this would help. And then those trees that were poisoned died. And then so did this one. And so did this one. And so did this one over here. Because the old root systems were all touching in this great Indra's net of connection under the earth. How small we can be in our thinking and imagining and appreciation of the way we connect, of the way that there are roots between me and you that we do not see but are here. And when you cry, I cry. When you feel something, I will be feeling it too in these imperceptible, impossible to chart kinds of ways. And it was in this spirit too that Doug, I think, gave me one of the most important lessons about this country. He said, there is a story of this country that I want to be told. I want everybody to know the story of this country because this is healing country. This is a country that is healing itself. It's not a country that needs to be fixed up because with all of the ruins, with all of the upheaval, it's coming back in a new way. That's how we would describe it. 
It's coming back in a new way. It has its own creative spark. Something that we need to respect. And this became manifest for Doug when he initiated something called the Mamanya Festival, which I know Elaine knows all about too. This Mamanya Festival, this word Mamanya, which is an indigenous Jara word, that actually has a beautiful kind of cluster of meanings. It's actually a, almost a medicine bundle of Dharma in this word Mamanya. It literally means this. Wait a while. Don't touch it. Growing up, wait a while. Don't touch it. Growing up. Isn't that a beautiful description of Zazen? Wait a while. Don't touch it. Whatever it is that's coming up, don't touch it. Growing up. Let yourself, your full self, your complete self, mature. Mature into all that you are. That's why we're here, after all, to be our complete selves, to be wholeness itself. And that means we must wait a while. Don't touch it. Don't tinker. Don't tamper. Don't go poisoning what we think might be interfering with our practice. Let it grow up in its own new way and reveal its great new artistry to us. That's our practice. But of course, this can all sound very nice, almost sort of idealistic. But we know what it's like to live in a bumbling world. We know how easy it is to trip up here and fall over there and make mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Luckily, Dogen Zenji used to describe our whole Zen practice as one continuous mistake. <laughs> Luckily, beautifully. But I recently encountered this beautiful poem by... I don't know if you know her, a wonderful Polish poet. And she describes this great, kind of great adventure of life, which we are all doing for the first time. Remember? <laughs> We've never done this before. And this is what Szymborska says. She calls this poem, Life While You Wait. <laughs> she says, performance without rehearsal. Body without alterations. Head without premeditation. I know nothing of the role I play. I only know it's mine. I can't exchange it. I have to guess on the spot just what the play is all about. Ill prepared for the privilege of living, I can barely keep up with the pace that the action demands. I improvise, although I loathe improvisation. I trip at every step over my own ignorance. I can't conceal my hayseed manners. My instincts are for hammy histrionics. Stage fright makes excuses for me, which humiliates me more. Extenuating circumstances strike me as cruel. Words and impulses you can't take back Stars, you'll never get counted. Your character, like a raincoat, you button on the run. The pitiful results of all this unexpectedness. If I could only just rehearse one Wednesday in advance. 
<laughs> or repeat a single Thursday that has passed. But here comes Friday with a script I haven't seen. <laughs> Is it fair, I ask, my voice a little hoarse since I couldn't even clear my throat off stage. You'd be wrong to think it's just a slapdash quiz taken in makeshift accommodations. Oh no. I'm standing on the set and I see how strong it is. The props are surprisingly precise. The machine rotating the stage has been around even longer. The farthest galaxies have been turned on. Oh no, there's no question. This must be the premiere. And whatever I do, will become forever what I've done. So we are what we do. We are what we do. Which is why Zen speaks not so much of enlightenment as some kind of goal, but focuses attention on enlightened behaviour. Perhaps enlightened relationship, you might say. So what about when things get really, really tough? What about then? What's our practice like then? Well, there's an old saying again from that big whopping collection of capping phrases that I mentioned yesterday, then saying, that says this, if you want to know true gold, test it in the fire. If you want to know your true luster, Test it in difficulty. Test it when the going does get tough. And I want to examine this a little together with a grand and truly demanding koan from the great Yun Men. The great Yun Men. A teacher that used to terrify his assembly by saying these impossible things to them and expecting an answer. And usually they couldn't come up with anything. So he'd come up with an answer for them. <laughs> respond for them. Or, if he did give an answer, he would often only answer with one single word. For instance, a monk once asked him, Yun Men, what is the most urgent phrase? And Yun Men said, Eve. <laughs> Which is something I'm sure a lot of people have experienced, you know, towards that last round of sitting towards lunch as it's coming up. There is an urgent phrase, I'm feeling, and I think it's eat. <laughs> when are the servers coming out? <laughs> but this koan from Yud Men is deeply moving, and it's this. A monk once asked Yud Men, when the tree withers and the leaves fall, what is that? And Yud Men said, Golden wind is manifesting herself. Golden wind is manifesting herself. So the monk is asking a deeply felt question here. When the tree withers and the leaves fall, what is that? Now, almost literally or poetically drawing on the culture of the time, the monk is asking about the experience of emptiness. This withered tree is an image 
of emptiness, if you like, where everything has fallen away. All thoughts, you know, all opinions, all knowing has gone. There is just this withered tree, this stark fact of emptiness. But equally, I feel this monk is asking a very human question. A question that includes and embraces the reality of old age, sickness and death. When this tree withers, this body, and when these leaves fall, everything that I've held most dear in this life, what then? What to do in such a state? How are we to listening to that fact. Now Yudman's response is golden wind, he says, is manifesting herself. Golden wind was the deity of autumn in ancient China, still is the deity of autumn in China. Golden wind is the one that blows the golden leaves off the trees, is the one that cools the ground in autumn, makes way for winter makes way for death, but does so as a kind of natural wind, golden wind. And the question for us is, can we discover the gold even in such circumstances, even when all that we have held most dear has fallen away? Perhaps one way of exploring that is with a poem from a collection of poems I've actually been reading recently by the um, author Sarah Holland Bat. I don't know if anybody's leapt into this book. It's um, on sale for $24.99 at Stoneman's now. <laughs> they can tip me for that later. Um, but it's bagged just about every prize you know, that there is around you know, the state in Australia. But, it's actually a very moving account of the final days of Sarah's father's life. And I'm going to share one of the poems from this striking series of poems. And this one's just called Lime Jelly. She says, your last burning day, you were thirsty, but couldn't drink. Even thickened water jerked in the throat. Your chest churned with hot asphalt, slurry of phlegm, a rumble of distant thunder. The flannels I dipped in cold scorched your forehead. Nurses swabbed your mouth with sponge lollipops, minted disinfectant to mask death's stink. Grace came as a nurse who thought of jelly. A single fluted cup, electric green, spooned, wibbling to your lips. Its slick sugars bypassed swallowing. You managed the whole tubful. A last rite, so tender. Months later, it leaves me trembling. The way this lime green jelly, the way this care was able to almost bypass swallowing, 
In fact, our experience of Zazen is just like that. Everything arrives and almost bypasses the mind. It just arrives completely as the grace that it is. As the grace that this nurse offered. And while the most urgent phrase here clearly was eat in this circumstance, clearly was eat, it's important to see how much actually was eaten, how much was consumed, how much was gathered up in this golden wind. The daughter, the father, the nurse, the lime jelly, the falling away itself, Golden wind, golden wind. Another example of this that I might share with you came from my own experience in the hospital. I remember being in there and being in a, an area of the hospital that has quite a lot of dementia patients in there. And I remember seeing one of these women sitting alone in the corridor. And so I just moved towards her and just sort of gestured to her. And before I'd actually arrived, she just looked up at me and said, what's your name? Now, I'd met this woman many times. And I smiled and said, my name's Keenan. She went, oh, and what's my name? And I'll make up the name. But I said, your name is... Claire. And she said, oh, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, we're speaking together. And she said, am I supposed to be somewhere? And I said, you're exactly where you need to be. And then she reached out and she took my arm and she said, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, you're lovely. And then she looked at me sternly and said, lovely, I'm amazing. How <laughs> 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 <I'm> amazing. <laughs> and this is the beauty of gold. I mean, so much fallen away so much fallen away, but so much radiantly clear. How beautiful that is. And I wonder too if you can notice in all of these examples actually how this golden wind who manifests herself, who requires no conjuring, you know, there's no need to invite autumn wind. Autumn wind manifests herself uninterrupted, you know, as grace itself. I wonder if you can sense too how all of these manifestations of golden wind are almost impossible to tell apart from Kuan Yin herself, this body sufferer of compassion. The deity of autumn, golden wind, Kuan Yin herself. Are these two? Can they be told apart? Is this one? Is this two? Can you recognize these dimensions in your own body, in your own life? That's what our practice is all about making plain. 
So perhaps to finish off this talk, I'll just read a poem that picks up on much of this. And it actually comes from a collection of poems that's conveniently called Gold. <laughs> by Rumi. New translations, actually, of Rumi, you know, directly from the Farsi. And this poem, luckily, does not have a name. So we can just accept it as a kind of capping phrase itself to this talk. Rumi says this. Whatever the ways of the world, what fruits do you bring? Say famine strikes, no bread or bowl of rice in the land. Royal in rank, royal in heart, where is your hand? Where is your measuring cup and storehouse of grain? Say earth and sky fall to idolatry, all of us on our knees worshipping figurines. Where is the idol, noble and clever enough to break the spell? Say scorpions, thorns and snakes overrun the world. <clears throat> Even so, you're brimming with joy. Where is your garden? Take us to the flowers. Misers rule. Generosity fades from memory. Still, your eyes see. Your heart is full. What wage will you pay? What clothes will you offer to the stripped and bare? Sun and moon go down in hell's flames. What light will you shine? What fire will you light before we can't see, before we can't hear? No mouth to utter love secrets. Where are the silent translations surging from your heart? Dear friend, Imagine you're a jeweller. You have more wealth than you can count. What else would you do but rain down pearls? Come, let's put all of this aside. We're drunk on a lofty ale and it's getting late. Where, my friend, is your tavern? Take us there. Thank you for your trouble. Mm-hmm.